At Cool Air Products, we developed AC Smart Seal Quick Shot with professionals in mind. It's the only product on the market that's three in one with sealant, lubricant, and UV dye all in a single application. It's non-toxic, non-flammable, 100% safe to the touch, eco-friendly, and compatible with all refrigerants. It's a safe solution option, backed by years of R&D, Intertech tested, and has sealed millions of leaks. AC Smart Seal, the professional's choice. The Master Group is blowing up across Canada from coast to coast. And we're doing these little mini tool reviews for you guys on Facebook and Instagram, and there's more coming. And these tools are valid, good tools for the industry. And if you're down in the U.S., they're still in your local area, and you can still get them. But if you're up in Canada, check them out at Master. They have very good, solid pricing at the Master Group. So check them out in store while you come in and, and, and do your shopping for your parts and stuff. And check out master.ca. So on the last podcast, we talked to Sean Hill from Nice Job. So basically what Nice Job is, is it takes reviews and puts them back in the hands of the customer because a customer, a lot of the times, will not take the time to give you a review. But if you put it back on them, send them a text, say, hey, we'd love a review, and then follow up with some emails, I mean, chances are at some point they're going to leave your review if you did good work. That's, that's the secret. Do good work, put the review back in their hands, take that review, and market it to your existing customer base or, or a potential customer base that you're trying to attract. We've learned that term is called reputation marketing, and, and that's what Nice Job does is, is they help you with your reputation marketing. There's a link in the summary of the podcast. Go check it out. Check out Nice Job. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the podcast. So Jamie Kitchen is our guest. He is from Danfoss, and back in the day when I went to Humber College for refrigeration, he was my shop teacher. And the man actually lives like two minutes away from me now, like many years later. It's so strange how the world works. I went into a grocery store one day and Jamie's standing in the grocery store in town and I'm like, Jamie? <laughs> anyway, so I have I have called Jamie. I, this uh, Officially, I am calling him the guru of TX Files because you're going to hear him blow your mind on this podcast. We're going to talk about this podcast is about superheat. But obviously, a big, a big part of superheat is the TX valve, is also the fixed orifice in a refrigeration system. Uh, you can't have a system without superheat, or you're going to flood the compressor with liquid. So this conversation revolves around superheat and the different metering devices. We're going to talk about static opening and total superheat. We are going to talk about how superheat is related to or how it can relate to humidity which i didn't even really think about before and jamie explains it in a way that is just it's he just has it on the top of his head it just comes off it's, it's amazing and i'm gonna have to listen and i told him this i'm gonna have to go back and listen a couple of times just to grasp all the information and absorb it but that's what my drive times are for so guys pay attention this is a good one this is the HVAC Know-It-All Podcast. I'm your host, Gary McCready. Welcome to the HVAC Know-It-All Podcast. Recorded from a basement somewhere in Toronto, Canada. Your host and HVAC tech, Gary McCready, will take you on a deep dive into the industry discussing all things HVAC. 
from storytelling to technical discussion. Enjoy the show. Hey, Jamie, how are you? <laughs> Not too bad. Not too bad. How are you, Gary? Good. We could have actually got together and did this lot, like like in the same room. We'd live so close to each other. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you know, even better than that, man, if, if everything was open yet, we could have went to a pub and had a few beers over it. But uh, I'm not sure how that would have turned out. It could have turned into a three-hour uh, jab fest and uh, over a couple liters of beer. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. But um, you're here, and we're going to talk some super heat, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, a really, it's a really important aspect of refrigeration and air conditioning that a lot of people don't understand and i i hope we can sort of clarify superheat in general for everybody here we can eat we can also talk about subcooling as well but superheat is is kind of the main meat and potatoes here so i will let you tell me your thoughts right off the bat like from the most basic level what is superheat that's a good question um and, you, and you're right that I think superheat, most people probably think they understand it. You know, if I go back to, you know, teaching at the college, I mean, the students can look at some numbers and do exactly what we tell them to do. In other words, you know, take one number, subtract it from another, and the value you get is superheat. And that's great. But do you really understand what it means and why you're doing it? And more importantly, what it should be. So in the most fundamental, superheat is essentially the temperature rise of a dry vapor, right? There's no liquid in it, a dry vapor above the temperature that it changed state at, it boiled at. So if you take a a, a basic refrigerant, you know, one with no glide, which is another topic altogether, let's say it uh, at a specific pressure it will boil at 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, 30, 35 or 36 Celsius or whatever it is. So it literally will stay at that temperature and boil until you are no longer left with any liquid. And the reason you don't really get a temperature change is because there is liquid that will actually change state. In other words, it can't hold any more heat energy that it's absorbing from the air or the water or whatever you're trying to cool down. And so it will just continue to change state. Take water in an open pot. No matter how much heat you add to that water, it isn't going to go above 100 degrees Celsius or 212 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, at normal altitudes. All it's going to do is boil faster and you're going to run out of water. So it isn't until you get rid of all that water and you only have dry vapor left, you know. So now let's look at a pocket of dry vapor at the outlet of your evaporator. It can't change state because that's already been done. So all it can do now is just warm up. So, I mean, a good example of superheated vapor or gas is the air, right? Nitrogen, oxygen, stuff like that. We're used to it. It's around us. It goes up and down in temperature. So when you add heat to the air, you heat it sensibly, it rises in temperature, right? It doesn't change state into something else. Mm -hmm. So this is exactly what superheat is. You've got this vapor at the outlet of your evaporator it still has a way to go before it finally exits the evaporator and in that period of time between the liquid running out and it running out of the evaporator into the suction line it climbs in temperature and probably the most important factor of superheat is really it is fundamentally an indication of how much refrigerant you have in the evaporator compared to how much heat load you have So 
if you have a flow of refrigerant, depending on whatever your metering device is putting in there, and you change your heat load, but the amount of refrigerant you are putting into the evaporator doesn't change, essentially you're going to run out of liquid either later or sooner. If you're adding more heat, you're going to run out of liquid sooner because it's going to boil faster. If you reduce that heat, let's say your refrigeration system has been running for a while, then there's not as much heat left in the room for it to be to the refrigerant to absorb. So you're going to boil that liquid slower and slower and slower. And that liquid is going to be approaching the outlet of the evaporator before it finally runs out. And your superheat is going to continue to drop until you have no superheat at all and you get liquid leaving the um, evaporator. So you have, you know, two different two different ends of the same spectrum. You have high superheat, which tells you you don't have enough refrigerant or, you know, not enough that would be ideal anyways. Or you have too little superheat, which means you have too much refrigerant and you're at danger of having it leave and flooding the uh, the compressor. So that's really what superheat is. It is just refrigerant that's been warmed above the temperature that it boils at, but in uh, as far as a technician is concerned and how it relates to performance, it just tells you how much refrigerant you have compared to how much load you have. So in an ideal world, you would have the minimum possible superheat that you could have and still guarantee your evaporator to be stable and you're not going to flood your compressor. So yeah. that, 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 that is the ideal goal. We don't we rarely ever get there, but that's kind of what we're trying to do. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And um, I had a, an example just from yesterday. I went to a service call and I, and I looked down, it was humid. Like, you know, it was humid yes. the last few days, right? It was very humid. Actually, the other day, it was like a, it was like a, it's even crazy in, humid even, the other day, man. Oh, yeah. even inside the, the building that was air conditioned, I felt like I was sitting in a swamp. But um, I, I go to this one call yesterday and the the day prior, it wasn't working. The, the maintenance guy reset the breaker or the disconnect and it came back on. It was running, <laughs> it was running when I got there. Um, but I, me. yeah, I looked down at the, I looked down at the compressors. There's a tandem set of scrolls and they were both covered in sweat and the puddle underneath them was huge. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm all for a sweating compressor in on a humid day around the suction side where it enters, but I rarely see the entire body of a scroll sweat. So I'm like, I'm going to check the superheat. And surely enough, there was zero superheat, like zero. So well, I had to go down like the yeah. scroll. Yeah, most likely. So I went downstairs to the to the evaporator. This was a two stage because it was a tandem set of compressors. It was a two stage evap with two TX valves. So basically, I had to set each one up independently, and I ended up getting like just around it was like seven ish degrees right at the evaporator, and and I I was okay with that. Um, so I, I left it like that. So I do you agree with that when you see a, an entire compressor sweating? that there's just too much liquid getting back to it. All right, guys, something pretty cool out of Haven IAQ and TrueTech Tools. So TrueTech Tools is working with Haven and they, they actually sell the Haven cam out of their online store. What they're gonna be doing through June 18th is they're going to be giving a 10% discount on a Haven cam central air monitor and it's not 
It's not code know-it-all for this one. It's code HAVEN10. H-A-V-E-N-1-0. HAVEN10 will get you 10% off a cam. Now, HAVEN's doing some very cool things in the industry, educating on IAQ, IAQ monitoring, and showing people how to fix IAQ issues in their home. So check that out. Supco, TradeFox, ideas at supcotradefox.com. That is the email address if you guys have a tool idea. Uh, that you want to bring forward to them and potentially partner with them on. Now, I have a tool idea. I've emailed them. I actually talked to them today. They're very serious about this. You get a hold of them, they'll get back to you, okay, eventually. Now, I'm not going to tell you what my tool idea is because I can't. (laughs) If you have a tool idea, I don't suggest you tell anybody else either because there's people out there that are ready to grasp this stuff and and take it for themselves. shysters out there you can't get away from them so if you guys have a tool idea prototype drawing whatever reach out to ideas at supco tradefox.com yj yellow jacket they got this hydrocarbon charging and recovery kit if you're working on propane um, base refrigerants like a2ls anything that's flammable this is a kit that you can use if you're working on that type of refrigerant. Now it comes with a little mini scale. Now, because the, these charges are so small, it's a little tiny scale that it comes with. It's very cool. It's got some, some pliers that you can crimp into a system um, and then pull the gas out and stuff like that. It, it's a cool little setup. So if you guys are in that field working these with these refrigerants, check out the YJ Hydrocarbon Charging and Recovery Kit. Uh, Viper, big blue, like, is incredible leak soap, especially when you see the amount of bubbles that form from a nice little leak. The bubbles just pile on top of each other. Now, the reason I bring this up, I've seen Brandy Ference, who's been on the podcast twice, <laughs> in a video using Palm Olive, <laughs> and she, she was at Ben Air Temp in Newmarket in Ontario, and I'm like, Ben Air, like, hook this girl up with some big blue, not Palm Olive. I'm sure palm olive works to a certain extent, but the big blue is they don't consider it a soap. They consider it a leak detector. And, and I think that's the, the difference there. So anyway, guys, check out Viper products. And of course, big blue. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 tough to say, I mean, because now you're getting into situations where it's like, you know, how much heat does the metal conduct and where's your suction yeah. coming in? But generally speaking around your discharge, and above your oil level in your sump, um, it, it all depends on the operating conditions. But yeah, if it's sweating where it shouldn't be sweating, where you should have heat coming in from the discharge in that, that's a problem. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, if the air is close to, a, a, you know, 100% humidity in there or 90% humidity, all it takes is a drop in temperature of five or six degrees Fahrenheit for something to start sweating. But if it's sweating that bad, and as you say, you know, it, it should be sweating in the summertime on the suction side and even the sump for that matter. Um, that's a problem. So, and the thing is, it's funny you should mention the, the, the humidity. Superheat in a system like that with a metering device, say a TXV, if everything is sized correctly, and that's another story altogether, but let's say, for example, your airflow is correct and your TXV is sized right. Your superheat is really a good indication of how much humidity is in the space. Well, and you think about it, 
let's take a, a normal, you know, dwelling. All right. You might fluctuate three degrees in that dwelling. Now, I'm not talking about the power's been off for three days and it's, you know, a million degrees outside or something like that. Of course, it's going to be hotter and heck inside. But let's just say you're running your AC system on a relatively regular basis. It might fluctuate between, you know, 72 and 76 degrees, say, for example. Well, whipty big deal, right? It's it's not going to make that big of a difference sensibly on the evaporator because there's already a... 28 or 30 degree temperature difference across the evaporator you know dry bulb wise a couple degrees isn't going to make that big of a difference it might be you know five percent more or six percent more uh, btus uh, uh uh per you know load on the evaporator however if you take the humidity inside your space and you go from 50% humidity to 75% humidity, you just suddenly added another 25 or 30% more load on your evaporator. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now you're looking at a situation where the TXV is going to respond by opening up substantially. And the only way for that TXV to open up more is, surprise, surprise, higher superheat at the outlet. Because your TXV in your in your evaporator doesn't give a crap what the humidity is, you know, or what type of what type of heat it is, whether it's latent or sensible. It just views it as heat, and so how the system operates, it just it just views it as load. So as your humidity goes up and down, that's really where your load on a residential system is going to change in the summertime. All else being the same, the humidity and your superheat should be tied very closely together. So I mean, if you have an OEM TXV, you know, take a TR6 TRV, one of the Danfoss ones I know, their factory superheat setting is is down low, like three degrees of, of superheat. In other words, that valve starts to open up at like three degrees of superheat. So if you're reading 12 degrees of superheat at your evaporator outlet, that tells you that TXV is wide open. Yeah. When the only way it's going to be wide open is unless it's undersized is you have a whacking amount of, uh, of uh, humidity in there. As the humidity drops, you'll see that superheat drop pretty rapidly with it. So there's really this linear relationship between superheat and humidity that you will actually see in, a, in an air conditioning system, more so than even refrigeration. So that, that's, that's kind of one thing I try and tell guys as a good indication of load on the system. And in an AC system, it's a good indication of humidity load or latent load. I've never even thought about it that way before. That's interesting. Yeah. Never, ne so, never have yeah. I tried to um, correspond between humidity and and superheat. So that's that's, yeah. that's really yeah. It, not so much in refrigeration because you got these wild swings in load, but in a, in an H, you know, in a system that's operating in AC, you don't really, you know, if it's operating all the time and maintaining a relatively stable dry bulb within a couple of degrees, again, your only real change is going to be in humidity. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it is. So I, I mean. There's there's a couple different scenarios we we're going to see superheat in with a couple different types of valves and one being a TX valve and one being mm -hmm. a a fixed orifice or piston. Can mm -hmm. we maybe explain the difference between the two of them and 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 what we should be looking for um, between the two types of valves? Sure. Um, pistons are an interesting beast. They're very simple, but how they function in many ways is 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 kind of left up to the elements. In other words, there's not a whole lot of control over them. And at the same time, you mentioned subcooling earlier. Subcooling in a piston system 
kind of works backwards to the way it works in a TXV system. So if, you know, take your garden hose, right? If you were to cut a short piece of garden hose, it doesn't really matter. A couple meters long, 10 feet long, whatever. The amount of flow you get through that garden hose, all else being the same, is based on the pressure differential across it, right? You know, it's flowing through, um, you, you know, you get a certain pressure loss through it or whatever, but the bigger the pressure differential, right, the more water pressure you have, the more flow you're going to get through it. Well, a piston is very similar because it's short. You don't get those friction losses in it like you do with a with a cap tube. Uh, cap tubes are semi self-regulating in that way, and it, I don't want to get into deep into it because you could spend twenty minutes talking about it. But pistons are basically just this dumb opening. It's a hole, right? And how much flows through that essentially is based on the size of that orifice, the size of the opening, and how much pressure difference you get across it. So if you were to take a specific condition inside your house, um, you know, 75 degrees and, you know, 65% humidity or something inside. As the temperature rises outside, your condensing temperature and pressure in the outside condensing unit rises with that, right? To maintain the temperature difference between the refrigerant and the outside air, because you've got to reject heat to it. So as your outdoor temperature and pressure rises, the pressure differential across your piston increases rapidly. So what you will see is you will actually see a drop in superheat, right? As the outside temperature climbs. So in the morning time, you may think, oh, right, you know, my, my superheat's going to be low because I don't have a whole lot of load. Well, the load in your house doesn't climb rapidly as the temperature outside does, because you have this thing called insulation and all kinds of other stuff, right? Unless you live in like a, you know, Aspenite shack or something like that. <laughs> so there's this delay, right? In between heat coming into the house, which is kind of what you want. So what happens is if you were to take your superheat reading in the morning time when it's 75 degrees outside, and let's say you read 16 degrees of superheat. Well, if you were to come back Three hours later, when it's no longer 75 degrees outside, but it's 95 degrees outside, that 16 degrees of superheat might have dropped down to 12 or even 10 degrees because you've got that much more flow going through because you have this much larger pressure, pressure difference across the piston due to the outside temperature going up. With the TXV, it really doesn't matter as long as you have enough pressure difference across the TXV to allow it to feed refrigerant into the um, meter, into the evaporator. So under normal operating conditions, it's really only going to affect the superheat maybe a degree or two, not much. So you don't have this pressure dependent swing, like, you know, at least the same magnitude as what you'd have with a piston. So the important part of this is when you charge a system with a piston, you'll notice two things that it tells you. One is the indoor wet bulb temperature. Why not dry bulb? Because again, it comes back to the fact that you don't run your house at 45 degrees inside, right? Like you do in refrigeration or, or you don't run your house at 90 degrees inside because if you did, who even needs air conditioning, right? Yeah. So you're running it at 72, 75, 76, whatever, right? They, they expect that range. It's not going to affect the load. However, the wet bulb temperature has a huge impact on the load inside. So you select your wet bulb temperature because it's going to impact your load by 30-40%. And then you look at your outdoor temperature. So once again, if you take one of those charging charts for superheat for a piston, 
if you take a specific wet bulb, let's say it's, you know, 65 degrees, and you compare your superheat for 75 degrees outside and then compare it again for 95 or 100 degrees outside, you'll see your superheat at the higher outside temperature is almost half of what it is when it's cooler outside, which is the opposite of what most people would expect if you just ask somebody off the street, right? Even if the, you could assume they understood what you're asking. Um, so with low temperatures outside, <laughs> your superheat actually increases inside with a piston because you just can't get the flow through it. Mm -hmm. That's really what it comes down to. Now, remember I mentioned subcooling? Yes. Well, most of the time when your outside temperature increases, the subcooling with a TXV kind of either stays the same or increases slightly, right? It goes up a bit. But with a piston, your, your subcooling goes into the toilet when the temperature rises outside. Why? Because all your refrigerants in the evaporator. With that larger pressure differential, you've just dumped all that refrigerant in the evaporator. It has to come from somewhere, and it's coming from the condenser. So really what you're doing is you're starving your condenser or you're reducing the amount of refrigerant in your condenser so you don't have all this liquid available to subcool, right? And so what happens is your subcooling goes in the opposite direction your superheat does, right, when your outside temperature changes. So on a hot day, your subcooling drops, your superheat um, goes, sorry, it goes in the same direction as your superheat. So on a hot day, your subcooling drops and so does your superheat right? You yes. don't see that same effect with a TXV. And anybody that's used to using a piston, a TXV can kind of be a frustrating situation. Yes, because, it is. Again, it is. <laughs> you know, especially when manufacturers don't put that adjustable superheat on it. I understand why they don't, because it's set at a specific value, right? There's really not a whole lot you can do to improve it, but there's a whole lot to, you can do to make it worse, right? So. I get that point, but if people are used to very specific superheat values that they see with pistons, you're not going to get that same effect with a TXV. You're yeah. not going to see that swing. So this is why you, when you see overcharged refrigeration systems and they have pistons in them, I'll put a $10 bill down to say that system was charged when it was cold outside. In other words, that was like an April or May install or a preventative maintenance check where the guy read his, his, his uh, high side temperature and he measured his inside superheat and his superheat was way higher than it should be. His evaporator pressure was lower than he thought it should be. And his condensing temperature was low, right? So he thought, oh man, high superheat, low evaporator pressure. Guess what? I need refrigerant. Dump in a few pounds of refrigerant, right? Everything looks great. And then two weeks later, the temperature goes up to 90 degrees and guess what happens, right? Yeah. You know, you flood the compressor, you go off on high head or, you know, any number of things. So that's why they put those charging charts in there just for those exact, you know, special occasions. Yeah, it makes sense. And and I've seen people say online that on a like a really, really hot day on a really hot climate that you could even see almost zero degree superheat with a piston. What do you think of that? Generally speaking, that tells me that you have a dry inside air. Because if you look at charging charts, <laughs> when you get up around 90, 95 degrees, if your wet bulb temperature drops, and I, off the top of my head, I don't remember, but if it drops below a certain value, you don't see a superheat value anymore. You see a flat line. 
right? Mm -hmm. Because your compressor just died. That's pretty much what it means. So, um, yeah, you're in a real danger. Without that humidity, you're in a whole lot of trouble because you haven't got the heat energy inside the house to really boil off that all that refrigerant you're putting in there. That's why for hot climates that are dry, like Arizona, places like that, where you have really high dry bulb temperatures of like 110 degrees outside, but you have very low humidity values, you know, you don't use those same charging charts in those situations there that you would say for Baltimore or Toronto or, or you know, where we live kind of situation because it's the energy balance is just completely different. And okay. if you overcharge the system, it doesn't take much, just a few ounces of refrigerant right extra on a, you know, ton and a half, two ton system can make a big difference. Oh, definitely. A hundred percent it can. And, and especially if you don't have a receiver to put it somewhere, right? So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the other question I had moving back to TX valves is I see people talk about how a TX valve needs um, a fully subcooled liquid, like it needs a liquid seal um, to, to in order to work properly. What's that all about? Well, to be honest with you, so is a piston because you've got this, okay, two different reasons, but let me, let me touch on it. You've got this tiny little orifice. That orifice is only sized to put liquid through there. So vapor, as you know, takes up, you know, enormous volume for a given weight compared yeah. to liquid. It's far yeah. less dense. So if you're sitting there trying to thread, you know, vapor through this tiny opening, you don't have a whole lot of room for the liquid refrigerant to go through. So what ends up happening is the vapor goes through there, clears, and then you have this liquid rushing through, followed by vapor, which kind of plugs the whole thing up, you know, again, you know, followed by liquid. Now, a piston is dumb. It doesn't care. It doesn't react. In other words, it just keeps going, right? You know, whereas a TXV, it's kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Hypochondriac. You know what I mean? Where it, you have this liquid going through and everything's fine. Suddenly the liquid stops and you get this vapor shooting through there. And it suddenly goes crazy because you suddenly get this wild swing in evaporator pressure under the diaphragm. Okay, which is a closing force, right? If that drops, suddenly your your sensing ball pressure, which doesn't change rapidly, it, it's it's now much greater than your evaporator pressure. So it drives the valve wide open, right? Now you've got liquid coming behind that vapor going into a fully open TXV, and it just floods the evaporator, shooting the evaporator pressure back up again right which drives the txv closed so you have this huge hunting situation and it's the txv doesn't know whether it's coming or going because it can't react fast enough right it, it doesn't mm -hmm. have that much capability it's a mechanical control um so that's where that um solid head of liquid is required because if you don't have that now you've got a txv that is always trying to catch its tail right? It's never going to get there. It's just going to keep going in circles and circles and it's never going to get to where it needs to be. So um, that's a real problem. And to be honest with you, it's the exact same thing that happens, relatively speaking, when people try and adjust the TXV superheat setting too low. Because the TXV superheat setting is kind of, its opening profile is linear. In other words, it's a semi-straight line 
that curves off at the top and slopes over to the right. So in other words, you have this straight line that goes from the bottom left to the top right. So picture a graph in your head. Mm-hmm. That's the TXV opening ca- characteristics. In other words, the amount of capacity you have, right? And you got superheat at the bottom. So as your superheat increases to the right, the TXV opens up and gives you more capacity and produces a straight line up until you start to run out of bulb charge, which is when it curves off and flattens out. All right. So when you adjust superheat, you're taking that slope and you're not really moving the slope too much. You're just sliding the whole thing to the left or to the right. So when you reduce superheat setting on a TXV, you're really taking the value of superheat that the TXV starts to open up. We call that static superheat or factory superheat. It's the value of superheat you see written on the side of the box or the install guideline. Let's say seven degrees of superheat. So that means the TXV isn't even going to open till you get to seven degrees of superheat. So if you reduce that to four, right, and you think, man, I just saved this guy a ton of energy. Everything's going to be great. And then two weeks later, he tells you that his compressor died. There's a good chance that you reduce the superheat setting on that TXV to a level below what the minimum stable superheat is for the evaporator. Now, this is an engineering term, and people's eyes will maybe glaze over here. We call it MSS. But every evaporator has a minimum amount of superheat that is required to ensure you do not get liquid out of it. So it is not a straight line, unfortunately, like the TXV opening profile. It is a curve. So when you take a curve and you put a straight line against it, it touches in one spot, okay? And then the curve bends away from that straight line. So as long as your straight line of the TXV is outside of that curve, it's stable. But as soon as you reduce superheat and you reduce it inside of that curve, certain parts of that TXV line is going to be outside of your curve where it's stable. Certain parts is going to be inside where it's unstable. And guess what? Most evaporator, their unstable part is exactly where it's going to spend 80% of its time running, which is right in the mid-load profile. So... If you turn around and you crank down your TXV superheat too low, and then you you know wander off somewhere, then there's a good chance that at a certain part of that load, you're going to start to get liquid out of your evaporator. Now, here's what happened. You get liquid out of your evaporator, that hits your sensing bulb. Your sensing bulb suddenly drops in temperature. And doing so, it starts to close your TXV off. Suddenly, the superheat goes up and everything is great right? Mm -hmm. But then over time, as the load starts to fall off again, right? Because you've reduced the superheat, you start to become unstable again. And so the TXV is hunting all the time, up and down, up and down, where you're getting liquid coming out. And people will say, well, okay, how can I have liquid leaving my evaporator if I'm measuring three or four degrees of superheat? Good question. It essentially comes down to this. Everybody should know that the velocity of air down the middle of a ductwork is higher than at the sides, right? You know, you remember back in school, probably in Nick Reggie's class where we had, we used the pedal, pedal tube manometer up on the ladder and you were measuring the air velocity through the main duct, right? And you would notice that the air coming down the middle of the duct is a lot higher than it is at the sides. Well, it's the exact same thing for refrigerant. The refrigerant at the side of the pipe that's coming into contact with the the walls of the tube 
are actually warmer in temperature and absorb heat very rapidly. Whereas the liquid going down the middle is isolated from the um, walls. Once you get your liquid level drops low enough, where you only have a little bit of liquid left, all that vapor that's forming at the walls suspends that liquid in the middle. So you have this liquid shooting down the middle of the tube on a conveyor belt of vapor, right? What happens is it only stays in the middle for so long before it starts to break up and hit the walls. And when it hits the walls, boom, that drives your wall temperature down. In doing so, it drives your sensing bulb temperature down, right? Mm -hmm. Cause the TXV to close up. Suddenly that vapor, that liquid disappears, the temperature goes back up again and the TXV opens back up again. So it's this fluctuation of open and close, open and close. That can drive a system crazy and you can eventually end up getting liquid back to your compressor or just not having a stable operation. So if you see unstable operation in your evaporator with a TXV, if you have a solid column of liquid in your TXV, the likely culprit is you don't have enough superheat set on your TXV. So you try adjusting it, increasing it about a degree, a degree and a half, I can almost guarantee it will stabilize at that point. Interesting. That is, yeah, that is, that is very interesting. It. Yeah. It's also a good indication that your t your sensing bulb's not mounted securely or and or insulated properly too as well. So just to give you that up. Cool. So I so, throw that in there. So <laughs> Oh man, that that was cool. The the way you described that with, with the relating it to airflow. I've never I've never imagined it that way before. It was Yeah, no, it was, it's true, actually. It's yeah. very interesting. So um you mentioned static superheat or factory superheat. Yep. And and I know that um through I actually listened to you talk about this with Brian Orr a couple of years ago and and you talked about static superheat and I believe it was operating superheat mm -hmm. and total superheat and and I don't think many people know what those are or the differences of them or can we talk about that for a second Sure sure Your static superheat is the force that is applied by the superheat spring So picture a straight line your diaphragm yeah. On top, you have your sensing bulb pressure, right? That's trying to open it. That's your one opening force is your sensing bulb pressure. Underneath that, you have your evaporator pressure. And applied as well is this superheat spring. This is a spring that is compressed by your, you know, when you adjust superheat, you thread a screw in there or something that basically compresses this spring. And if it's a non-adjustable TXV, it's basically set at the factory. So this spring is compressed under the diaphragm and pushing with a certain um, force. If you take that mechanical force of that spring, right, and you convert it to, to say an equivalent pressure, what pressure would have to be under the diaphragm in order to apply that same amount of force, right? Let's say it's, you know, 10 pounds equivalent or whatever. Well, if you're using R410A, how much temperature does that 10 pounds equal to at whatever temperature the evaporator is running at? So if it's running at 45 degrees, and let's say you take a pressure just for the hell of it, I'm going to throw a number out there. Let's say it's 100 pounds, right? Mm -hmm. If you were to add 10 pounds to that, what would the temperature now be, right? Well, whatever that temperature now be is the difference between that and what the evaporator actually is, is the equivalent superheat. So in other words, if you have seven degrees of superheat, your spring is pushing with an equivalent force of seven degrees, 
In other words, if my saturation temperature was seven degrees higher, how much more pressure would I have, right? That's really what it is. And that is added to the evaporator. So if your evaporator is at 45 degrees and your superheat spring is pushing with seven degrees of equivalent force, right? 45 plus seven is 52. So until your sensing bulb, right, warms up to 52 degrees, it's not going to have enough pressure inside of it to overcome the evaporator force and your spring force because the 45 degree evaporator, the seven degrees equivalent of spring pressure added together is 52 degrees. So your sensing bulb, for all sakes and purposes, has to be 52 degrees before it can overcome those combined pressures. That's why you need seven degrees of superheat at your outlet of your evaporator, 45 plus seven, so that your sensing bulb is 52 degrees. Now you've got a balance of forces, right? The opening mm -hmm. force is the same as your closing force. Still, jack all is going to happen, right? Yeah. But if your TXV is closed, right, or it needs to open more, right, you don't have enough refrigerant in the evaporator, you're not going to stop at seven degrees of superheat. It's going to continue to climb. And so your sensing bulb is going to continue to warm up because the refrigerant leaving the evaporator is getting warmer. And this now, with the sensing bulb being warmer than 52 degrees, it's going to have more force than the evaporator and the superheat spring trying to close. And again, because the, the, the sensing bulb is an opening force, it's going to overcome those two forces, def deform or deflect the diaphragm down. And when it does that, the diaphragm is connected to your push pin, which is connected to the valve. That now pushes that valve away from the seat, right? The valve pin away from the seat. Mm -hmm. And this starts to open the TXV and it starts to add refrigerant. So whether you're going from zero refrigerant and opening or you're increasing the amount that you're open, it's all based on how much, what the temperature of your sensing bulb actually is compared to the temperature of the refrigerant in your evaporator. So eventually you're going to get to a point where you're going to have the capacity of your TXV that it's rated for. So let's say it's rated for 1.5 tons. All right. When the valve is hits 1.5 tons, it's opened a certain amount. Trust me, it's not fully open yet. It's opened a certain amount. It takes a certain value of superheat to hit that. And most times it's around five to seven degrees of superheat above your static. And we call this opening. So if you were to take a standard seven degree static superheat TXV and it has five or seven degrees of opening superheat seven plus seven is 14 so you would actually read 14 degrees of superheat leaving the evaporator that is what you call operating or total superheat so the 14 degrees that you measure is the operating or total superheat the difference between it and your static is what we would call the opening superheat now the txv is not done Remember how I said you got that straight line that plateaus off to the right? Mm -hmm. Well, at the rated capacity, you're only about 75% or even 70% of the way up that straight line. 
you still have about another 20 or 25% to go before it starts to plateau off. So a lot of times we'll call this reserve or pull down capacity or whatever, but the TXV is fully capable of probably giving the, you know, not 1.5 tons, but maybe even 1.8 or close to two tons of capacity. So you may ask yourself, okay, why don't we call it a two ton TXV? Well, because you're not gonna get that two tons of capacity at 14 degrees of superheat. You're gonna get that two tons of capacity probably at 21 or 23 or 24 degrees of superheat, mm -hmm. which is not the type of superheat you wanna be working any type of system at. Yeah. Because it just throws your evaporator temperature way above what it should be average temperature wise. So the most accurate part of the opening and closing stroke the range of the TXV is at sweet spot between, you know, zero and 75%. That's where you want to be operating right in the middle of that band. So because that's the most accurate place, because it results in reasonable superheat values, we limit the capacity or we rate the capacity of the TXV, you know, at about 75% of its full stroke or something like that. Everybody does it a bit different, but it gives you an idea of, of what you thought. So you may think, oh man, my TXV is wide open. I've got, you know, 17 degrees of superheat. Eh, it's probably not wide open. It's probably 85 or 90% open. But for all sakes and purposes, yeah, it is. It's fully stroked open because in order to get that last 10%, you're probably going to have to add another four or five or five degrees of superheat to it, right? So that's that's kind of, of where it comes down. Now, because TXVs will happily regulate over that range, you know, from about 25% capacity up to about, you know, you know, 100% capacity of the rate of capacity, a lot of times you will see the same TXV in a two and a half and a three ton system, you know, even a two, two and a half and three ton system. The TXV may have a different code number on it because, you know, for manufacturing purposes and aftermarket purposes, but I can guarantee a lot of times the same TXV, right? Because if you put a three ton TXV in a two and a half ton system, it's going to operate just fine. It has had zero issues, right? Even a two-ton system, unless you're going to run it under really, really low load, it's going to have no problems either. So sometimes <laughs> you might take this, if you take the same system and you run it under the exact same conditions inside and outside, and you may think, huh, why does this one have 12 degrees of superheat and this one has 14 or 15 degrees of superheat? Well, chances are the 14 degree one or the 12 degree one should say the 12 degree one may have the uh, be a smaller system with the TXV from a slightly larger system in it. So it doesn't have to open up as much to give you that same capacity. So, you know, all these things happen. We don't really know it because it comes from the manufacturer, but that's really what it is. Yeah. That's can, why sometimes, oh, sorry. I was, I was going to, I was going to ask you a question because there might be some people confused because I was a little bit confused too. So I, maybe you can clarify. So you were talking about the 1.5 ton valve and yes. how you, in, in order to get its full capacity, you'd have to go up to like 20 degrees of superheat. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, and that was wide open, you were saying. So it, when I think of a, a wide open TX valve, I think of like almost no superheat, but you were saying that it's, if it's at, at it's almost full capacity of the two tons or whatever, it's you're going to have 21 degrees of superheat approximately, and it's going to be fully open. So, mm -hmm. what do you what do you mean by that? Because when I think of the, the the superheat being high, I think of the TX valve being closed down. 
Yeah. And see, that's that's the thing is you have to understand that in order for the TXV to open up, the sensing bulb has to be substantially warmer yes. than the refrigerant and the evaporator. Yes. Yeah, so that's where right that now. superheat comes from. If you have if you have really high superheat, right? Or if you have really if you have really low superheat and you have a valve that's wide open, that means that valve is stuck, right? There's something seriously wrong. So either you're you um the, the sensing bulb isn't insulated and the sun's shining on it. And trust me, I've seen that before on some outdoor chillers where we were losing compressors. And, you know, I was, a, I was a junior field service engineer, you know, fumbling around on my overalls. I look like Dave, you know, like Dave Lennox <laughs> out there or something, right? But anyways, you know, uh, in the Florida in the heat, um, I look down and like, you know, where the hell did this sensing bulb come from, right? You know, and sure enough, there's the TXV, right? And this sensing bulb's sitting on top of, you know, this black insulation, you know, sunning itself, right? You know, with no sunscreen. So, you know, gee, I wonder why we're flooding the compressors, right? When you grab the sensing bulb, it's freaking hot in your hand, you know? So um, really, if it's a situation where you're flooding that compressor or flooding the evaporator and your TXV is wide open, yeah, that's a problem. You mm -hmm. might want to look into that. So yeah. um, either somebody's dialed the superheat way down or, you know, they, 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 you know, there's a whole bunch of different scenarios, but either way, that TXV is far more open than it should be. So, and since TXV is usually closed shut when you have a loss of bulb charge, the only other thing I can think of is you've got some crud in there or something that's, you know, made varnish inside the system and that TXV is stuck in the open position. That is pretty rare because it's under a tremendous amount of force imbalance when it's wide open. In other words, that sensing bulb is just laying on that diaphragm hard in order to drive the valve open. So if it's going to stick in that position, even after the sensing bulb has, you know, removed that pressure, there's something holding that pin in place, man. And whatever it is, is really stuck it hard. So um, that's a problem. You know, there's probably something you're going to have to chuck that valve out, man. If, you know, if everything else checks out, the valve's probably going to have to be replaced. And I've seen it before. And again, it's usually some kind of schlacking in the system that causes the old generation of leak um, of um, leak plugging stuff, you know, anti-leak stuff. Yep. I think it was based a lot on the old automotive stuff. I remember we used to drive the old, you know, Dodge Dusters and stuff like that. And the radiators always leak like sieves on those things, man. And, you know, we you put that, you know, that stop leak stuff in the radiator, you know. And uh, it plugged just about everything else up with the radiator half the time. You know, <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, I think <laughs> that kind of reminds me of the stuff that the first generation of these uh, leak repair stuff they used to have. A lot of times they would plug the TXV up because it didn't seem to affect the pistons that much. Right. But TXVs hated it, man, because it would coat everything inside of it and stick. I've up. Seen, yeah, so, I've, I've seen pictures. I've seen pictures of, of um, back in the day of it, of it coating being coated around a bunch of stuff because i guess it was it was a polymer base that reacted yep. to air and moisture and it mm -hmm. would just it would just gum up so um yeah yeah like has anybody ever called you just off the off topic is anybody well i guess it is on topic has anybody ever called you the guru of, of tx valves before <laughs> you know no because i'm not really the txv guy i'm actually the the air the air quality guy like the air treatment guy you know humidity and uh um and and you know the, that whole 
evaporator air interface. You know what I mean? That, that, that's kind of my background. So TXVs, I just picked more up that on at Danfoss because, you know, it just happened to be that in commercial refrigeration, what we were doing, there was so much work on TXVs. And at the time, there was a huge push to drive down superheat on low temp applications. So, you know, we were developing these new sensing bulb charges so that they would operate on much lower superheats at, at low temperature and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, you, you, you start, generally speaking, most of the stuff that fails in, on, on larger systems, it's usually on the electrical side, right? By the time you get there and the smoke's cleared, you know, usually it's some kind of electrical failure. A lot of times, though, those electrical failures, they're initiated on the refrigeration side, even though they're not identified. So you, you do a compressor teardown, you got open windings, right? You know, and the inside of the compressor is baked or, you know, whatever happened, it, it was initiated through the refrigeration side. Most of the time that can be traced back to something that you see either on the metering device or on the charge and air side. So because the metering device and the TXVs were really making their way into AC sides, that's kind of pulled me in that direction because we had to do a ton of training on TXVs, man. So when I went from the refrigeration side to the AC side, it was about the same time that SEER 13 came in. I don't know if you remember that or not. It was 2006 around that time. And it went from SEER 10 to 13. Suddenly overnight, everybody was putting TXVs in, in air conditioning systems, residential units. Mm -hmm. And overnight, nobody knew what the hell they were looking at. Right. Because you had a whole generation of guys that had lived with pistons and suddenly there's this TXV and all the things they normally would go by didn't work anymore. So it, I had to go, you know, eyeballs deep into TXVs and just, you know, to go through this and explain it to everybody that, no, you don't have to adjust it. And no, you don't have to pull the TXV out if it doesn't, if the conditions aren't exactly the same as what you're used to. It took about three years of intense, you know, interaction with the industry. And it's not just me. I mean, it was Emerson, it was Sport, and it was Parker, it was everybody. You know, we were deep into it just to bring the industry up to speed on it. And, you know, a big chunk of that has been done now, especially with the newer generation of techs that have been out for the last, you know, 15 years. You know, they're used to it now, but at the, at the start, it was a nightmare, man. I, I won't even guess how many TXVs we had returned that we would go in and check and there's nothing wrong with them. They just got pulled out because what guys were seeing was not what they were used to, right? And because it wasn't what they were used to, they thought there was something wrong with it. And the first thing they did when they found out they couldn't adjust it or didn't know how to adjust it, out it came. So you know that that that's the issue that's that's a that tagline that's a tagline that uh i use i started well when, when i changed the, the logo for one of my facebook groups uh the tagline was it's probably not the txv <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness man that's awesome yeah it's probably not the txv yeah yeah no they're they're mischievous little gnomes those things man you know because there's so many ways that other parts of the system can mimic a problem with the TXV, you know, 
it, it's it's like and, I, and i've fallen prey to it too so really good texts that i've known especially yeah. on late I, nights I when you just too. want to get the hell out of the where you are yeah you know what i mean and it's like oh my god i can't believe that was a plug solenoid valve upstream in the liquid line i didn't even see it right you know kind of thing yeah and you're it's yeah it's it, there, there's all kinds of issues but basically if you can ensure you've got a solid head of liquid at the TXV, i.e., you've got good condenser subcooling, and in most AC systems you do, refrigeration systems, eh, not so much, especially supermarket stuff. But you know, in AC, generally speaking, you've got good subcooling. You know, if you don't have any line losses, like if you don't have sweat on your um, filter dryer, right, or frost or whatever it is, you know chances are you've got a solid column of liquid out of your TXV. So if it's underfeeding the system and all else looks good, you know, first thing you want to do, grab that sensing bulb with your hand and just see if it suddenly drives the valve open. If it does, then you know your sensing bulb charge is good. Don't put your torch on it or boiling water or do anything stupid like that. Just, you know, your hand should be warm enough to heat that sensing bulb up four or five degrees. And if it's just a matter of the superheat being setting in correctly, or maybe the valve being a little undersized or something, it should drive it open. If that doesn't really work, that doesn't necessarily mean the sensing bulb charge is gone. There's another possibility that the valve is plugged on the inside. It happens, right? You know. Mm -hmm. So, um, unfortunately, at this part, you're gonna you're gonna have to take either the orifice out or you're going to have to yank the CXV out. And if it's a non-replaceable orifice, then you got to replace the TXV anyways. But take the time to look at that inlet screen on the liquid side. Because if you do that and use like a little LED flashlight, if you have to, if it's plugged, right, chances are there's still crap in the system. Where did it come from? Why didn't the filter dryer pick it up, right? You know, these are things you kind of have to ask yourself. What would I do? Well, I mean, I would have flushed the system with our, you know, that RX-11 or whatever the heck it is now. I, don't, I can't remember. It was years RX ago. RX-11 flush, Re yeah. Yeah. Replace the TXV. Do whatever you have to do because you really don't want to have to go through that dog and pony show again. The systems are, you know, set up so that once again, if you have the correct charge in the system and it's on the nameplate generally and you've you know, maintain there's correct airflow. There's no reason why everything shouldn't be working properly as long as it's clean inside. So, you know, if everything's set up right, you should be able to walk away from there and that system should not need, you know, service on the refrigeration side anyways, until it's time to put a new one in. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, I always check the airflow on my system, you know, every year and I'll make sure the filters are cleaned. I clean up around the outdoor unit. I just have a base, basic contractor grade, you know, bare bones SEER 13 system that I had in my house and it's 13 years old. And the only thing I ever replaced on it was the cap outside. All right. The, the, for, for the fan and the scroll, right. You know, cause I got that call from your wife. You never want to get right. Um, the fan, <laughs> the, the air's coming out, but the outside unit isn't making that uh, noise that it always makes. Right. Yeah. Crap.
right? Yeah. You know, meanwhile, I'm in Vancouver or something, right? You know, oh. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you know, it's Wednesday, I'll be home Friday, right? You know, yeah. so in the meantime, the first thing I do is I call the electrical place in town and go, yeah, I need a cap, man. <laughs> I'll be inside Friday or whenever it is to pick it up, right? So I get there, pull you pop, pull it off, rip out the cap that's in there, right? First thing I do is push the re, push in the contactor, right? And all I see is the system bumps a bit and the fan motor bumps a bit, right? And that's it. It's that's it, right? So it's like put a new one in, way it goes, man. Life's yep. good. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so one one of the things that I wanted to mention quickly before we head out, and, and I, and and it gives people confidence that the TXV was the problem, is that, and I see this a lot, where somebody will see a low charge and they'll think it is the metering device that's the problem. So they hmm. will be like, okay, um, I'm getting a new metering device, put in a new TX valve, but then when they they charge it up, they weigh the charge back in. Um, and now it's it's running fine because their charge is good, right? Sure. So th- they changed the TX valve, even though it might not have been a problem, put the correct charge in, and now it's running fine. They go, sweet, the TX valve was the problem. I solved it. And then they get this confidence built up yes. that, yeah, they change the TX valve, and every time they see that, oh, I'm going to change the TX valve. So that's that's one of the things that I see a lot, and, and I think that's, that's where determining um, your superheat and subcooling and knowing what they mean is, is going to tell you whether it's low on charge or a big part of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. We, we, could talk, low, we could talk about subcooling for another hour and a half. So that that's yeah. why I, I'm not really going to bring it up now because it, the, that's a whole other podcast. Oh, uh, you're throwing that out as a fishing lure we, for the we, next time. Yeah. Right? We, we, we just had, we just had like an hour long conversation on superheat. So I'm sure we could do that on subcooling at some point too. Oh yeah. And then some, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, well, and then after that, we can talk, you know, fan pressure controls or something else, right? Why not? <laughs> yeah, there's a ton of stuff we could talk about, man. And Oh, yeah, and- man, you could do like a whole series on this, man. <laughs> I think people do, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jamie, man, man I, I, that, was, that was awesome. And I'm going to, I'll be honest with you. A lot of the things, I don't know how you get these things and, and keep them on the top of your head because I can't do that kind of stuff. I have to go back and look in books and research and stuff. But I'm going to have to go back and listen to this podcast again a couple of times just to absorb some of the things you were saying because I didn't fully grasp them right off the bat when you were when you're talking. So kudos to you to have that in your in your head, that knowledge just just firing away, man. That's awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And it's kind of one of the benefits we have now that we never had back when we were in school, right? Like unless you want to be the nerd with the big tape recorder on your desk, you know, with the cassette in it, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like. Now, though, right, man, you can just go and listen to stuff over and over and over again and get what you missed, right? You know, so, I mean, that's one of the benefits, I guess, of of, of the day and age, I suppose. But yes. anyways, yes. I'm sounding like an old guy now with my cane. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate your time tonight, man. That was awesome. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate being on here. And again, it just, I, I remember stuff when I bring it up again, too, man. It's been a strange year and a half, I'll tell you. Man. All right, mind blown, admittedly, right? If if you guys want to listen to this podcast again, so be it, because that's how you're going to absorb the information. If you've already heard this stuff a million times, then it is probably like a refresher. But if you're trying to learn it and absorb it the best you can, listen to it again and again and again, because that's the only way you're going to do it. Repetitive, repetitive nature is is how you get ahead. 
and, and I'll tell you what I used to do back in the day to understand some things. I would sit like with a, a floodback system on like a, like for winter operation, I would sit and draw it out. I draw the whole piping out and follow it with my finger. And, and, and the reason I drew it is because when you draw it, you're doing the work. It's just like when you, when I write something down, if I read it, I might remember it, but if I read it, then I write it down and then I read my own writing. It's like, I absorb it better. So drawing it out, helped me absorb it better. So, and I did this repetitively and, and I feel like a, re a repetitive nature when it comes to learning is very important unless you're one of those people that can just read something once and you're done. Right. But I'm not that way. I, I need to work at it. And Jamie just had all this stuff off the top of his head and it was crazy. And I commend him for that. And we are better for having him as a guest here on the HVAC Know It All podcast. But guys, I'm out. Happy HVACing. Thank you once again to the Master Group. Hope you enjoyed the show. Follow HVAC Know It All on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, and anywhere else Gary feels like popping up. This has been a Two Smokes and a Coffee production.